This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to have the honor of moderating our panel discussion on the future of student health igniting evidence-based action at educational institutions. And so I think it's a real honor that we're here at UCLA today because uh, UCLA is home of one of the most innovative healthy campus initiatives around the country uh, and has further stimulated interests throughout the uh, UC system in a healthy campus network, trying to figure out ways to deal with, in the case of today's panel, food insecurity at home on our UC campuses. And so for today, I have uh, brought uh, together the usual suspects when it comes to uh, food insecurity reforms within the UC system. The people here today represent a combination of researchers, activists, student activists, researcher activists, and uh, uh, student researchers (laughs) all in one panel. And these folks have uh, really been part of a social movement here at the UCs to try to deal with food insecurity in very practical ways. Food pantries on university campuses go way back, but over time there's been a growing awareness of food insecurity uh, uh, throughout uh, university campuses. And the UCs, under the uh, UC President Napoletano's Global Food Initiative, have become really, really mobilized around this issue. And so this panel is here today to share with you all the story of how this all came about and, and where it's going in terms of changing the landscape of food insecurity across higher education in California. The UCs are the largest employer in the state of California. California is larger than many uh, European countries. And so if we can change food insecurity here, it's not just a proof of concept. We're really talking about making changes in, in health over the long term. So instead of me introducing you guys, I'm going to ask you to each speak a little bit, uh, just say who you are, but also share with the audience how you got uh, excited about this area and what role you've played in the story of the UC campuses and our food insecurity uh, reforms. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Antonio Sandoval. I work at the UCLA Community Programs Office. What we do there, it's a little bit different from other UC campuses. Uh, Most UC campuses have a multicultural center. We, about 20 years ago, decided to go a different route uh, in terms of uh, creating a uh, model where students uh, of color work with within projects doing community work and uh, engaging uh, more closely with their student advocacy groups uh, that are mostly uh, community of color based. Uh, I've served as director for 10 years now and one of the key things that um, that interested me when I became director was hearing a lot about the economic crisis that was hitting in 2008. Uh, uh, we were hearing a lot of middle class students, actually, ironically, talking about divorce and um, foreclosures. And ironically, being in this building and looking through the trash for food, 
And so working with our Muslim students, uh, we were able to come together and uh, repurpose a storage room into a food pantry. Uh, it was sort of controversial because uh, it hadn't been done within our university before. And we, uh, fortunately, since uh, January 2009, have never looked back. We've been um, doing this at the community program's office. And we have now linked up with colleagues over the years who are doing amazing work in terms of research. So we, in the CPO, do more along the work of student affairs, multicultural student affairs. And over the course of time, we've, we've seen our work expand. So it's uh, very nice to meet, be with all of you today. Thanks, Thanks Antonio. Yeah. So my name is Ruben, he, him, they, them. Um, my home campus is UC Berkeley. Um, the reason what made me come into this conversation was um, I think seeing this challenge uh, from, a, from a, just a very young age, uh, are there anybody, is anybody in here from the Imperial Valley by any chance? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Crickets. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I got you. We go way back. Um, so, yeah, the, ch the challenge has always been really present. Um, I was also uh, somebody that had a really unique experience. Uh, our journey started in, in, in Mexico. My, my mother graduated from UNAM in Mexico City. My parents met down there, so we, so we started in Mexico. We had a middle income uh, lifestyle, and then we came to the U.S. My mom's visa was, was rejected, and she became undocumented, even though she had dual degrees and was this badass feminist independent dual business owner. Um, so, so losing my mom's um, professional career and my father working in Mexico earning pesos and turning pesos into dollars, you lose a substantial amount of your income. Um, and we slowly lost all of the savings, and we find ourselves uh, experiencing uh, a poverty that, that, what, that I hadn't experienced but my parents had grown up with. So that was just a, a lived experience, but also noticing that in, in the community that we covered, it was a very normalized issue. So, so let me ask you all three very quick questions. How many of you all grew up in a community where there were more liquor stores and fast food restaurants than there were healthy, nutritious, affordable grocery stores? Stand up or otherwise signify. Stand up because you know you want to stand up because you've been sitting for a hell of long. So move, move your bodies, feel free. Like, let me know who's in the room. And if you can't stand up, raise your hand. But how many of you all grew up in a community where there were more liquor stores and fast food restaurants than there were affordable grocery stores? Okay, put your hands down, take your seats. How many of you grew up in a community where you had accessible, affordable housing and housing was not an issue for anybody in your community? Raise your hand or otherwise signify. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you all grew up in a context where finances were a day-to-day -day struggle in your family and in your personal life experience? Raise your hand or otherwise signify. Okay, and the last question is this. How many of you went to a school that it was mandatory for every single student, regardless of GPA, to take a class on life skills, uh, personal finance skills, health and wellness skills, cooking skills, food prepping skills, and surviving in college when you transition to college? Raise your hand or otherwise signify if you went to a high school that made it mandatory for every single student to take a class of this nature. So if you look around this room, the people that have been raising their hands, standing up, are not going to schools that taught us how to do this. So there's a lot of layers that we're going to get into this conversation, but thank you all so much for being here with us. Okay, Susanna. I'm not going to be as energetic as Ruben, but no, I'll try. Um, my name is Susanna Martinez, and I'm part of the UC Nutrition Policy Institute. Um, I ended up in this area because of 
this wonderful woman right here, Lauren Ritchie, who you'll meet in a minute, but um, she uh, started working in this space a little bit before I started um, at the Nutrition Policy Institute, and um, it didn't take very long for me to get engaged. One of the first experiences I had was um, the California Higher Education Food Summit, where I met um, Tim Galarno and um, Ruben Canedo here, and um, it was an amazing experience hearing all of these stories that students had about, um, you know, just the challenges of going to school and experiencing food insecurity. And as somebody who was a single mom during graduate school, I, I understood those struggles. So um, it was, it was, I've been um, very engaged in the work, and I'm really excited about it. And I hope we, um, I hope we make a lot of progress. Yeah. Thanks, Suzanne. How about Marie? Good afternoon, everyone. So my name is Lorene Ritchie, and I get to the honor of directing something called the Nutrition Policy Institute. It's housed in the University of California's cooperative extension arm of the university, which hopefully you guys all know about. But if you don't, the Division of Ag and Natural Resources is the land-grant university arm of our system, and we are the outreach arm to the public. So we communicate the science that's done at universities out to the public and try to take the problems of the community back to the researchers in the universities. Thanks, everybody. Ruben, if you can give us a little background on, uh, like, how did this problem get outed in the first place? So I think it's important to situate ourselves that, that our, our current systems and institutions are, are built to produce inequality, right? So, so there, there's been the challenge of students not having enough to support themselves. The issue is that, one, it was invisibilized, and then at best, it was kind of like, like that's just part of the college experience, and it was normalized, and not normalized in a healthy way, right? I think... Uh, for quite some time, students have been showcased to be eating cup of ramen noodles. They've been showcased to having to work multiple jobs, so on and so forth. So the struggling student has been something that has been normalized in the culture in the United States. So I wouldn't be able to answer when was the first time that a student came across waking up and not having enough money in their pockets or in their bank account and having to struggle that day because it's been going on for such a long time. Once we opened up the opportunity of higher education beyond um, wealthy, white, predominantly heterosexual male and the socioeconomic status of people going into the university shifted, I think that's a good starting point to think about. But in most recent times, I think the cost of living increasing so drastically and post-recession tuition increasing at a level that now it wasn't just the lowest income students that were struggling. It was working class students, middle class students, and even some of like upper class students who had multiple siblings in college. Many of them starting to say like, I'm struggling with this. And I think that started raising the conversation to say what's going on because too many students are ending up in our students of concern offices, ending up with psychologists and psychologists asking them like, um, you know, when was the last time that you had a meal? Um, ending up in the emergency room to no fault of their own, they just were incredibly undernourished or hungry um, or homeless. So I think the more that it started happening to so many more students, and I think students that made us start feeling uncomfortable because we weren't used to working with them, um, was a challenge, right? Yeah. How do you help a student that is telling you, I haven't eaten, and I've already maximized my financial aid package. What else do I do? Right. 
What do you tell a student that tells you, I cannot take out loans anymore because my parents already have two of, two of my older siblings that they're still paying off their loans, and they've asked me not to take out my loans, and I'm working two jobs, and I've never worked before. So okay, now the so, scenario started being different. So what you're telling us about is stories, right, which is yeah. an important part, people's narratives. But then there's the issue, big institutions, yeah. it's about putting numbers on those stories. Yeah. So Loreen and Susanna, how did that all go down? You guys did the research on this. Um, I'm going to start, and then Susanna is going to tell you some more details. But um, the journey for me started in 2013 when I was asked to give a guest lecture at a large public um, health undergraduate course. So there was about 400 kids, somewhat like this audience today, and I was asked to speak about childhood obesity. That's my uh, research topic, child nutrition and child obesity. So... I wish I could tell you that I had this all planned out and thought through, but I didn't. It was just pure serendipity that after my lecture, my guest lecture in this course at UC Berkeley, um, two very brave young women took it upon themselves to come and talk to me. And this is what they told me. Um, one was a young Latina woman. She, had, uh, she was the second of, in her family uh, to go to college, so her parents were trying to put both her and her sister through school. To save money, she lived at home, which was an hour commute away, and she had two jobs. So she had two hours of commuting, school, and work. And she could not afford to eat three meals a day. So what she was doing was skipping at least one meal a day. And she had done this for quite some time. But she was a junior now. Classes were getting harder and harder. And she found herself not being able to sleep. So the level of stress and the level of under-eating had caused her that in the middle of the night, she would wake up and not be able to sleep. And she was getting in this vicious cycle, so much so that while she talked to me, and I was a complete stranger, and I think that was actually why she could open up to me. Because I've learned now from speaking to multiple students that um, as Cindy Leung uh, showed with her research and her qualitative stories, is not an easy thing to talk about if you're a student. You're at UC Berkeley, UCLA, another UC, an elite place you already probably have a little bit of that imposter syndrome where should I really be here? Am I really cut out for this? Can I compete? And then you're facing this sort of shame of not only am I struggling to do well academically, but I'm struggling to feed myself. That's not an easy thing for students to admit to. The second student who came to talk to me, and they both talked to me at the same time. And interestingly, by the time we were done, all three of us were in tears. She was living on campus. Um, she also had a family. Her, her single mom was putting her, and I can't remember if it was a, single, a brother or sister, through school. So she was trying to do her best to help her mother, and she only had a meal plan where she got 11 meals per week. Mm -hmm. So you can do the math. 11 meals per week doesn't really line up to three square meals a day. And she was getting also further and further behind in school. So at the same time that they were sharing their stories with me, I was a mom, a married woman, with three children, two in school and one about to be in school. 
and I have an academic salary, and I'm about to face a $100,000 a year bill for my three children to be in public school. At the same time, I came from a background myself of low income, putting myself through school, not struggling with food insecurity because when I went to school, the price for tuition at San Jose State was $99 a semester. So I could work one job, commute to school, go to school, pay for all my bills, help my mom with rent, and not be food insecure. But that is not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. So the serendipity of all that is that personally I was in the right place at the right time. I wasn't their regular professor, so they, these students felt comfortable talking to me in a way that, oh, their grade wasn't on the line or I wasn't going to look at them all the time during the rest of the semester and wondering who they were and what they were about. I was a stranger talking about nutrition. They wanted to know, how can I eat healthy when I can't even afford to eat enough? Long story short, that led me to write a grant to a foundation in 2013. And interestingly, uh, you know, as a researcher, that's the first thing you do, right, is you want to study it. Um, there was only one other study that had been published on food insecurity in students, even though food pantries, as Ruben had mentioned, had been around for a while on campuses. So you ask yourself that question, why is there food pantries on campuses? What does that mean? Yet nobody had really looked into the 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 level of food insecurity on campuses. They hadn't quantified it in terms of the number of students. So that one study, armed with that one study and a grant, I submitted. Um, guess what the reviewer comments were when I got them back? Anybody have any ideas? You're crazy is what Susanna says. They didn't say it exactly that way, but that was sort of what they said. These are elite college students even if they have temporary food insecurity, it's probably not very widespread, and why should we care? If students have to skip a few meals or eat ramen noodles, do we care? Does that make a difference? So they said it much more nicely than you're crazy, but um, that's how it, uh, the comments that I got back. But again, serendipity hit. Um, I became the director of the Nutrition Policy Institute, which is housed in the office of the president, and my first day on the job, my boss, who... Um, has since retired, came to me and said, I want you to write a uh, two-page proposal to President Napolitano. My first day on the job? Really? It has to do with the Global Food Initiative, which I said, what is that? So long story short, President Napolitano stepped up, funded Suzanne and I to do a study that she's going to talk about, and we now are, are where we are. Wrap at. it up really yeah. fast because we have one minute. Um, so, so after, you know, trying to coordinate the study on all 10 campuses, we found that 42% of students were um, experiencing food insecurity, um, 42%, which is three times the prevalence of what we know in the U.S. household population. Um, pretty big number. Everybody was shocked. The information was not well received, right? I mean, because everybody was in disbelief. Um, and yeah, it was, it was shocking. And you know, we did further analyses to you know try to understand like, okay, who are these students that are um, experiencing food insecurity? And, and we found that a large number of these students were um, Hispanic, um, African American, 
um, you know, experiencing more food insecurity compared to um, the white students, although there are students who are white, there are students of every, um, you know, uh, income category who are facing food insecurity. Um, a large percent of our students were on some type of financial aid. Um, about of about 22% um, of the students um, who we sampled had been food insecurity during childhood at some point. And so um, we went on to do some even bigger analyses, looking at some um, multiple you know, regression models and finding that some of the biggest indicators for food insecurity were was whether the student had been food insecure during childhood, um, whether they were on financial aid, um, third-year students and fifth-year students um, happened to have a higher risk for food insecurity. And yeah, we're still learning from the data because it's a pretty rich uh, data set. So, Antonio, I'm wondering if you can break this down for us because it's not just, in my understanding, it's not just about food, it's not just about stress, it's also about homelessness and other problems, social class. Can you share a little bit about your understanding of that? And, and well, um, well, thank you for the question. Uh, many of the students that have come forward as being uh, food insecure also I mean they they have a lot of stressors with um, with them uh, many of the students come from uh, families where where sending them to school is the biggest priority paying that bill so a lot of the additional bills need to get paid by the student and the student starts making compromises as to the choices that they make sometimes housing uh, takes a takes the impact because students then do couch surfing uh, students will uh, uh, try their best to find low affordable housing it's really difficult at UCLA to find affordable housing I mean an apartment can run you between three and five thousand a month uh, and it's really difficult to get one that's low low cost here uh, there's also the commuting factor there's a a conversation on campus as to what a homeless student is, uh, whether a student who may come from Riverside to UCLA and commute, whether that student is technically homeless if they have to commute every day and they have a difficulty going back home, especially at night. I was, uh, I was one of those students when I, when I was at UCLA as an undergraduate. I commuted three hours each way every day, undergraduate and most of my graduate years. And uh, it was very difficult getting home at night. So I, I had to make some compromises. Sometimes I would just like take the bus all night long when I miss my last bus and try to find a way home. So there's there's a nexus between home between food insecurity and housing insecurity uh, that sometimes people don't want to talk about because the conversation leads to questions that are uncomfortable for people to answer. Right. And in addition to that, people might feel helpless in finding a solution. Thanks so much. Thank you. Can I have some context? Yeah, Ruben. Yeah, so some, just really quick, because I know that there's, there's a couple of faculty here in this space, and there's a couple of folks that are leading research centers, and I know that you all have either graduate students working in your spaces or undergraduate students working in your spaces, so it's really important for us to name the fact that 48% of undergraduates in the study were food insecure, and 25% of graduate students were food insecure. So this notion that it's only undergraduate students struggling is actually not true. 
And there's a lot of things that we can start intervening if we become aware that of what's going on, right? So one of the one of the conversations that we're trying to have right now is is in our hiring practices. How do we how do we inform folks who have the authority to hire and are writing grants and are putting budgets and so on and so forth to be mindful of the food insecurity that exists and also the housing insecurity that exists so that we can be more innovative in the way that we're activating resources into our efforts so that we can be true allies and champions of these students' basic needs. And the realization that this is a problem at the UCs has led to this broader conversation on some campuses, we're starting to ask about food insecurity among staff, and, on, and, and there's also a movement uh, to really extend this out to the California State University system, the city colleges, and so forth. So there's, this is just really the beginning of the conversation. But since we're, 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 we only have a, about 10 more minutes, I want to just move this pivot onto what about solutions to this, this problem? You're telling me that 42% of students in an elite university are food insecure. You're connecting it to issues of class, race, ethnicity, homelessness, uh, housing insecurity, right? So there's, there's a very complicated, multifaceted problem. How do we even like start to think about solving this problem and moving. You guys have been really at the forefront yeah. of coming up with solutions and mobilizing around this issue. What, what do we do? Yeah. So I'll, I'll just add two, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pass it to the rest of the folks. So um, you all saw a little bit of moving towards solutions. So uh, Dr. Cindy uh, from UCSF, now moving to Michigan, and the work that you saw earlier today, working with an actual undergraduate student, Anthony, I think we need to improve what we understand this challenge to be. We need more qualitative studies. We need to have qualitative data in addition to the great quantitative data that we have for food insecurity, housing insecurity, financial insecurity, and the impacts that they have on students. So we call that basic needs. So when you hear me say that, it's all of those. Research is very important on the student experience, but we also need your help, and that's why we're here, because we need evaluation help. Right? We need to start going into our interventions and looking at what is working, what can be improved, how do we do that. So any undergraduate in the space, graduate student in the space, and faculty looking for, a, for something to play with right now that's going to have immediate transformative impact, we would love to welcome you into this basic needs conversation because we need experience and evaluation research. And the second thing is prevention. We need early education efforts. Students are coming into college and they've never seen a financial aid package. Many students are seeing a financial aid package for the first time when they get their financial aid package. And when you come from a low-income background or a working-class background or a middle-income background, but nobody speaks financial aid in your family, all you see is a total cost of attendance. And you see over $30,000, over $25,000, and you're like, hell to the no. Our family never even touches that kind of money completely. So why would I even make a decision to go to college? But we don't break those things down. We also need to be teaching students in high school. So anybody in here that's working in curriculum, if you're already in the community, bring the work that you're doing and find ways to translating that work to high school students. And this is what I will end up with. It's not just telling a high school student, look at the website and trust that they're going to understand what the website is. That doesn't work. We need to find ways to translate those teachings into something that makes sense to students, right? 
So when we go into high schools, we don't just go in there to talk about financial aid, but we go into a high school and we see a student that's wearing Jordans and we'll pull that shoe off and put it on the desk and say, how much does this cost? And they're like, $126. They know everything. Well, what Jordan is it? And is it firsthand or secondhand, resale, eBay? They'll break shit down to the T. We have entrepreneurs in our high schools, right? So, when they, so they'll tell you, oh, that's 126 but if you got it first can, that's actually 219 No, no, no. That's how much people are paying for it. But how much does it cost to make the shoe? How much does the sole cost? How much does the leather cost? How much does the painting cost? How much does the production cost and the distribution cost? Because the shoe actually only costs $11. You're paying $219. You just got hustled. How does it feel to be wearing those shoes? And then you make it feel like shit. Good. Because then they can resell that and get that money in their pockets and put that to college. You see what I'm saying? We got to be creative in the way that we're having conversations with high school students and not just think that the high school students aren't ready for this conversation. Because when I was in high school, when Tony was in high school, when many of us were in high school, we were already supporting our families like if we were adults. But nobody wants to talk to us in that way, preparation to college. So I'll leave that there. Research okay. and prevention. So change happens... A combination, a combination of the top down and the bottom up. Antonio, tell us about the first food pantry here, and, and what was that like? Uh, it was uh, it was difficult to get it started, uh, and the first question was not about uh, the need, but more about the risk and liability issues and giving away free food. Uh, you know, we we did our first uh, request for food and. The parents of Westwood Hills donated, I don't know, caviar and skis and other stuff. I mean, I just didn't understand what that was about, but uh, they wanted to be supportive, and somebody gave us a, a thousand packets of bread and uh, meat, deli meats. I'm like, okay, we need to do this, and we need to do it right. But, I mean, f I would say that the, the experience I had was one where open-minded people across hierarchies on campus made the decision to be cooperative. Uh, this could have easily been shut down at UCLA. We are in Bel Air, and people don't like to admit, well, actually, I'm in, I need to modify that now. People didn't like to, in 2009, admit to being impoverished or being hungry or not having housing. People did play a game of, no, I'm just like everyone else. Uh, but I, I think that now that's really changed. People really are open to letting people know what they're experiencing at UCLA. I just think that the open-minded behavior um, allowed us to do a lot of different things. And then when the Global Food Initiative happened and the work of Ruben and Tim and others like Wendy Slusher on this campus with HCI, that allowed different people that were doing good work around the campus to come together in a way that's allowed for us to do just more. And okay, so, so let's talk about the Global Food Initiative. Sure. So that, that's the bottom up. People really looking at the problem, having experienced it, and bringing about change. And then the top down, at some point the institution says, hey, we've got a problem. 42% of our students are hungry. So what's going on at the, at the Global Food Initiative level to move the dial on this problem? I'll start by just saying that um, President Napolitano is pretty unique among uh, other university chancellors and our presidents. Uh, Ruben and Tim and Suzanne and I have had the opportunity to meet in a variety of different venues with many different colleges, and we are f by far uh, one of the few who has a 
president who really has put um, food insecurity as a focus. And so she has funded each of the 10 campuses, and Ruben can talk more about the dollar amounts, but it's considerable. Um, first, a modest amount, I think, of 75000 per campus, and then more like 330000 per campus to uh, engage students, staff, faculty, um, to come together and identify ways that through food pantries, of course, to identify the, to address immediate needs, but even more upstream and, and preventive actions so that more students can get the help that they need before they need to ever get to the food pantry. And Ruben, you can p- talk about all the great work you've been I, doing. Yeah, so I'm seeing, I'm seeing the, the, the communication, so I'll keep it short. So um, right now we're in four areas, research, prevention, sustainability, and advocacy. So where we are right now is we're starting to have the conversation of saying, look, basic needs challenges aren't going to go anywhere, right? Students are going to continue to be financially insecure, which makes them become food insecure, which also makes them be housing insecure, because that's the way that the system is built. The federal government is not providing equitable funding to public higher education. The state of California still funds more per prisoner than per public college student. The universities are in challenging times because they're having to respond to higher operational costs. So it's a financial infrastructure that is not built for students to be basic needs secure, and we're aware of that. President Napolitano, the leadership of each campus, is a champion of that, and we're, and we're having that economic conversation. But for now, we need community support into doing that research, being part of prevention, being part of sustainability efforts. So if folks are here in the area, I really encourage you all to come with Tony and have a conversation with Tony and say, Tony, what do you need and how can we help you? Just like in the previous panel, somebody stood up and said, hey, I'm from the business world, from unrefined sugar or some shit like that. Be like, yo, I'm down to make some business conversations happen. I want some business conversations to happen with us because we're supporting students that are food insecure, financially insecure, and homeless. Okay, just before we have to go, give me the short list of stuff we're doing. Pantries. I, I think one of the things that Ruben hasn't mentioned, which I think is um, pretty novel, is um, UC Berkeley is developing a screener right now, and what it, it's a screener to help um, identify those students who might be experiencing either housing or food insecurity, and it'll be um, either for freshmen or third year, or uh, not third year, but transfer students who are coming into the system who are new to, to you know financial aid and everything. And so this is really novel because it'll identify which students need what um, you know what resources, and we'll be able to connect them with those resources, yeah. and hopefully we won't eliminate either of these issues, but at least we'll be able to make a, an impact. I think the line is, is simple. It's, it's early education, early detection, uh, improvement of skills, personal budgeting skills, cooking skills, self-advocacy skills, CalFresh. CalFresh is huge. Anybody in here doing CalFresh work and wants to work with us, we are amplifying CalFresh across the UC system largely on every single campus. I mean, like, there's at least 10,000 students per UC campus right now that are potentially eligible for CalFresh because of AB 1930, 214, 453 passing. So SNAP nationwide in California, CalFresh. Afterwards, for students that are still going to have need, that's where our pantries come in. That's where our emergency aid comes in through financial aid. And life is going to happen, so there's going to be crisis, and we're building out crisis resolution models as well. So that's the student flow of the work that we're doing up to this point. All right. Give it up for these change leaders. Yeah. Trying to give you some money, man. Questions? Oh. I thought we were going to kick out. 
I've got yeah, one down here. Uh, thank you for this uh, great conversation. Uh, my biggest concern is that why, why can't the school provide uh, meals at a reasonable cost for all the students? You know, I'm, I grew up in, I'm from South Africa, and my mom worked a lot. But every time my mom was at home, I knew when I come from school, there would be cooked food. And that just takes all the stress away. Why can't they cook the food, breakfast, lunch, dinner, that is reasonable for the students? That, that takes a away a lot of stress question. when they have to study and do other stuff. Why can't they do that? Yeah, so probably a lot of you know that in, if you're in K through 12, uh, most schools have school meal programs. So they provide school lunch, and many of them also provide school breakfast. So that is definitely something we've been talking about. Can schools, higher education schools, be restructured so that when you pay your fees and tuition, included in that is a certain number of sustainable um, me meals that would sustain a student and, um, and make a school meal program exist beyond the K-12 arena. That's something that might need to happen at the state or federal level, but those are conversations that we've been having. I just wanted to add really quickly that at UCLA, uh, we're having a serious conversation if students stay in the residence halls, which almost 100% of our first years do, and making sure that if students really need 14 meals a week, that they get them. Uh, the school's also working here to make sure that there's an affordable meal plan specifically designated for students who are low income so that if they, they need a meal, it's not going to cost them a fortune. It's going to be nutritious, and it's going to be affordable. Another question? Hi. One more. Uh, hi, my name is Lee. I'm with the Food Bank of Santa Barbara County. We supply food to... Uh, yep pantries at UCSB, yep. Santa Barbara City College, Alan Hancock, and I was wondering, do you guys do any kind of uh, <clears throat> CalFresh outreach for your students? Yeah. Yeah, so, hope, so I apologize if, if that wasn't clear because that, that's like our big push right now. Okay. CalFresh is the priority right now. Every single campus is building out uh, conversations with their subcontractors of USDA CalFresh outreach teams to bring it onto campus. I think every single campus within the first month of the school year started at least doubled the amount of CalFresh applications that they submitted within one month. Yeah. Awesome. Do you guys have the link for students to do it themselves? Yeah, yeah, we're working with Code for America, Get CalFresh, yeah. And thank you so much everything that you're doing in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is lit. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.